Johnny D, the motivational cowboy with this week's Outstanding Life podcast. If this is your first time listening, welcome to the show. And remember, you can get all of our shows on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud, and Player FM. I am so excited about this week's Outstanding Life podcast. I am in the studios right now with a great friend of mine. Met him, I don't know, four or five years ago. Gerald Valley in the house right now, literally in the house. What's going on, my friend? What's happening, Johnny? Thank you for very much for having me here. You know, it's been too long that since we've gotten to hang out and just shoot the breeze a little bit, and now we get to do it and let millions uh, listen in. Listen, I mean, what do you mean? I mean, it, it was just uh, it was just yesterday or two days ago that I was on your show, so it's like twice in one week, dude. We're well, rocking it. Well, I have to, yeah. Let me digress a little bit because <laughs> I, I, it was, it was my. My honor to have you on my show yesterday, and that show will be airing here in the next month or two. But, yeah. um, you know, to be able to sit down and talk and catch up and just uh, discuss life together yeah. and let other people ch- uh, listen in and hear uh, just two dudes talking about life and how we got to where we got to. Man, it is so cool. And I, it is an absolute honor to have you here. And I just want to kick things off right now. And I'm going to jump into this because each each episode's right around an hour. So I have a feeling that this might go into two episodes. But um, hey, listen, man, you're young. You're just born, I guess. And um, um, you were born a little bit different, I guess, would be the right way to put it. Would that be... Yeah. Kind of, I mean, you, you've, you've told me the story and I don't even know how to ask the question. I mean, you like, you had to wear like braces and stuff like that. And then when I saw like, um, the kind of braces and stuff that you had to wear, it looked like somebody was torturing you. Totally. It's called a Gatlin <laughs> and you're splint. you're laughing right now, but it's called what? A ga- uh, Gatlin splint. And, uh, my legs were all curled up or something in the womb. So when I, when I was born, my feet were facing each other. The balls of my femurs are actually deformed, which I didn't find out till decades later. Right. And so they put this little apparatus where I had to wear correctional shoes and a bar between my legs for the first two years of my life. And when my mom didn't have to put it on me, on me anymore, I had to learn to walk again because I knew how to motor around the house with that freaking thing on. <laughs> and then all of a sudden I had to learn to walk all over again. So it was sort of Forrest Gumpish, but it is very tor- like a torture device, yeah. a medieval torture so device. So at what age did the braces come off? About two. I was about two, two years, years old. old. Yep. All right. And, and, and so you weren't even in school yet. So kids didn't even know that, that you were wearing this, right? And to be honest, I don't remember much of that time of my life. Yeah. So until I was reminded later in life and doctors, as I started getting into athletics and, thing, were comment, and things were commenting about my knees were sort of wacky. They didn't go back together like everybody else's. And um, they said I would have to wear correctional shoes later into my life. And I did get sick of people making fun of me. So right. I got uh, McLinden's, which is, is a shoe yeah, company here. Absolutely. That was the only place I could get shoes. And when I didn't have to go pick out my shoes from McLinden's, <laughs> it was like a rite of passage. You know? I can get normal shoes. Yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you what. It, it, so, so you had the braces, but then you were half deaf too. Well, that's a funny story. How is that a funny story? Because it really <laughs> I mean, is. So, so you have braces on your feet, you get those off, and then you find out you're half deaf. Well, the funny story, <laughs> Johnny, is it wasn't until third grade that they figured it out. And because my last name is Valley, starts with a V, so I was always on uh, the, uh, the left side of my left, teacher's right, right side of the room. And my bad ear is my right ear. And they're like, I don't know what's wrong with your son. He doesn't listen. He doesn't respond. He's staring out the windows, daydreaming like they thought I had some serious mental problem. And they finally, in school, they used to test our hearing. And they finally tested it and said, you know, he has like 5% hearing in his right ear. So they fitted me for these giant freaking hearing aids. And I mean, uh, the whole third grade, like R2-D2, C-3PO, <laughs> I got it all. Finally, I, I told my mom, like, I can't handle this anymore. Yeah. I quit wearing them. And my mom would tell the teachers, just seat him on that side of the room. 
all of my friends to this day know if we're walking anywhere, walk on my left side. Sometimes I fall asleep and roll over on my left ear and an atom bomb could go off and I'm not waking up. It just doesn't work. And also, we're going to get into my hockey career a little bit, but when we switched ends, my coaches knew. Now my right ear was facing the bench. If it was a, they had to get my attention, they had to find another way to get my attention because I wasn't going to hear them. That was exactly my, my, uh, my next question. So that happened in like around third grade and about four years old, like you literally almost get out of the braces, right? You finally get real shoes, and In, you start skating. Into so, hockey so, skates, so, so you go from the braces to hockey. That's not, like, normal, dude. I mean, you, first of all, I mean, we both have that in common. We both started playing hockey when we were four or five years old. I remember that. But you have to learn how to walk before you skate, and you literally learned how to walk with braces on, and then you got on the ice. I will tell you the main reason is and I and don't want to get hockey? I don't want to get choked up here, but my mom never treated me different. Yeah, so I didn't know anything was wrong. I thought every kid did what I was doing. I I didn't right. know anything else. And my uh, cousin uh, Jim Hyatt played hockey, and we went to one of his games, and I was just like, I want to do that. And next thing you know, I'm pushing a chair around the ice, yeah, learning yeah. how to skate. Yeah. I skated out one year when I was four. At five, they needed a goalie in the father son game, and I volunteered like a dummy. And um, I never played another position the rest of my career. I loved stopping hockey pucks and being a goalie. And uh, it just went on from there. I loved it. I, I wanted to spend as much time as I could in an ice rink. You know, I, I um, being a goalie myself, I kind of liked being the goalie. I mean, one, they all thought we were nuts anyways. And I, I guess we kind of are a little bit nuts. How long did you play? I started, you know, four or five years old. And my last year of juniors, I was 20 and a half. Okay. And so, about, so did you ever like want to take that career anywhere? Um, you know, for much of, uh, I was drafted when I was 15 into the North American Junior Hockey League. Uh, when I was 14, uh, I had been playing AAA and my parents couldn't afford to keep me playing AAA. So I started playing junior. So at 14, I started playing junior C with all 18, 19 and 20 year olds. Yeah. And I was 14 years old. Well, I got drafted and in that league, at that time, Michigan was the hub for hockey. Yeah. I mean, NHL prospects were coming to Michigan to play in the North American Junior yeah. Hockey League. And so is that like Little Caesars and stuff like that? Even above even high- that. Okay, gotcha. Above that. Like, we had big sponsors. We were flying to St. Louis to play yeah. the Junior Blues and, and things nice. of that nature. And... Um, I, everybody, my dad thought I was going to be in the NHL. You know, I was playing all over the country for a short time. I played for a California team. And when I didn't get any kind of OHL or NHL kind of things, uh, my last year, I did have an opportunity to go to New York and play pro, Mm -hmm. um, not in the NHL. And I just wasn't in love with the game anymore. I had been going to a rink for all of my life. Yeah. My knees were giving me trouble. I would fall down getting out of bed sometimes, and I'm just like, I'm done. And my dad about fell out. He's like, what are you talking about? I'm going to be getting free tickets to the NHL. And I said, I'm done. You know, I was going to college, already riding a skateboard, had the girlfriend, all that kind of stuff, and I was just done playing. Gerald, what kind of kid were you? Um, I was. Were we good in school? Were you... I was not good in school. I'd, I had to uh, work hard for C's, but I didn't get in trouble. Right. You know, I followed the rules. I, I wasn't, you know, skipping school or doing drugs or any kind of things like that. I wanted to do the things that were fun, and I knew if I played by the rules, my parents wouldn't bother me too much. Yeah. And I had an older sister, younger sister, and they liked, you know, sneaking out the window and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> um, so you're the middle kid. Yes, I'm okay. the middle kid. And... Um, but I, I just, I knew I wanted to continue to have fun, and I just did my job, which was go to school. So playing hockey, you're also a drummer. When did you get your first set of drums? Again, I, I'm I'm a very DIY, do-it-yourself kind yeah. of guy. And I started going to Wayne State University right out of oh, high school. Oh, so you played drums later on in life. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. I, um... I started going to Wayne State. I graduated high school when I was 17, 1990, and I started going to Wayne State. And I'm riding my skateboard, hanging out with the punk rock guys, and a friend of a friend was like, you know, I'm starting this band. I need a drummer. 
whoa, okay. So I go to the pawn store and I buy a drum kit and I'm- Wait uh, a second, wait a second. You did not even know how to play drums and you told the guy, hey, listen, I'll be right back. I'll be your drummer. Not quite like that. I didn't say a word to him. Gotcha. But I'm like, that would be cool. I'm an active person. Yeah. So I buy this drum kit and I don't know- anything about anything. I don't know a drummer. So I'm sitting on pickle buckets. I have a wooden chair as like my hi-hat because all I have is the drums. That's it. And I start learning how to play the drums. And I was driving a lot. So I would tap on my steering wheel to teach my hands and feet to do different things. And so every night I'd come home and I'd play my drums. And I started, uh, he ended up taking me to another shop. I bought a drum kit, started learning how to play that Christmas. I got some cymbals and I uh, just kept on progressing. Yeah. And it just worked. I, I'm playing with this guy who can play drums better than me. He's like flama- 12 string flamenco guitarist and he wants to play in a band. I'm a pocket drummer and I fell in love with it. I mean, there was a time I was working with a gentleman hour away from home and he says, you know, I'll take you guys out to dinner because you crushed it today at work. And I said, you know what? If I drive home, I could play until nine o'clock. I said, I'll get home at 830 and I can play my drums for a half hour. So I'm going to go home. Uh, no that, kidding. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, it just, it never went away. Even when I was traveling as a, uh, skate, a professional skateboarder, I gave my drums to my friend. I said, you can take care of them, you can play them, but I'll be back to get those. <laughs> and today, they've had some customizing, right. but I'm playing that same exact drum set, the second kit I ever bought to this day. So the ones in your basement that we see all the live feeds... Those are your original drum set. My or that second is your, set. Your the second, second one. set. I've had the edges re-sanded, re, uh, the bearing edges. Yeah. Uh, a friend of mine does drums, and he said, what do you want them to sound like? And I said, of course, John Bonham and Dave Grohl. Okay. So he sanded them down like that. I re-wrapped them orange metal flake. They look like they're custom, but it's a Mapex kit from 1993, and it sounds good, and I'll continue to play them. Have you ever jammed with anybody famous? Um, I, well, I guess in your well, circle they would be famous, right? Well, I mean, Mike like, Leslie from Candlebox, you know, okay. we uh, I was helping him learn how to skateboard, and we stopped one day and we we jammed for a while, and he's a friend of mine. But uh, you know, I played on a couple albums, a band called Stalefish, just okay, f- four skateboarders making punk rock about skateboarding, and we have two records. You can find them on Spotify and all that stuff. Stalefish uh, is S T S T A L E P H I S H. And it's just skateboarders making fun, catchy punk tunes about skateboarding. Um, we toured. We had a great time and, yeah. and played all over the country. Cool. It, it was a great time, and I continue to play a couple, three days a week. So drummer, hockey player, when did you even think about riding a skateboard, dude? I mean, I mean, did that happen later on in life? Because, listen, how old are you right now? 47. You're 47 years old when you look like you're, like, 30. So, you know what I mean? I get in trouble with you all the time when we're out. I'm glad that you don't drink anymore. <laughs> but you're 47 years old. and Dude, and you're still rocking the skateboards. You're still rocking the skateboard parks. When did, when did the whole skating thing even come up? Well... Uh, Was it after hockey or before? Nope, that's a great question because I had a childhood friend. uh, We were inseparable, uh, Marcel and Rob and I. He moved to Florida. He came back, uh, I'm not sure the exact year, but I was just going into seventh grade and he had a wide skateboard and I'd never seen one. So I rode it around. We lived in a place called Colonial Village and I rode it and I told my dad, I'm like, I want to do that. And he went to Dunham's, you know, got me a cheap board and I wore that out. Got me another one. I wore that out. And I was playing AAA hockey at the time, so the kids came from a little bit more of the upper uh, right. echelon of so the So you were 15, 16 years old? 11. 11? 11 okay. years old. And uh, these guys all had, like, the good brands, Powell Peralta, Tony Hawks, and they would sell me their used boards for 35 bucks. Okay. So I would buy them, and, um, and it just never went away. When I was traveling playing hockey... My skateboard went with me. When I was 16, I went to Sweden to play hockey. My skateboard went with me. When other guys at 17, 18, 19 years old were wanting to chase girls and go drinking, I was out in the parking lot grinding curves and things because I was straight edge most of my life. Gee... And that's your nickname, right? Yeah. Why do they even call you G? Because Gerald is not a very common name. I'm sure most of the people listening probably, oh, Gerald Valley, that's pretty cool. Well, it's actually Gerald, and I've only met two other ones in the world. And so when it, I, I'm used to it getting butchered. Gotcha. And at a certain point, people just started saying, hey, G, what's up? And, I mean, even my dad now calls me G. Most, okay. Most, uh, 99% of anybody around me calls me G. G, was skateboarding... Hockey, drumming, 
your escape. And I ask that because of this. I know what it was like being a kid and struggling in school. I hated school. But I loved being a part of school. I loved the hockey. I loved the sports. I, I loved the friends. I loved the things about school. I just didn't do well in school. Was that kind of your escape? I think I was wired a little different. And I don't know where, when, how, whatever. I, I'm not really sure. And I didn't realize this till later in life. Mm-hmm. Um, I really wasn't a big fan of myself. And so if I could uh, overdo it and everything else and be excel at everything else and everybody else liked me for it, that was, uh, that's what I needed because I couldn't look in the mirror and do it for myself, even in high school, because I'm a, I'm an artist too. Mm-hmm. And in high school, I would do the banners for the football team and I, I was the best painter and I did the cover of the yearbook and stuff like that, but I wasn't the popular kid. Right. And skateboarding and punk rock, it was not popular in <laughs> right. the 80s. So it was me and two other friends who rode skateboards and were into punk rock. That was my circle of friends. But I had to be the best because I had to hear the cheers and hear people tell me that because I couldn't do it for myself. And so have you always been this outgoing? Because ever since I met you, I mean, you know, we actually were brought up in the same area. And it's funny because our paths never crossed. But once we did, we became instant friends. And you have the same charisma as I do, man. It's like me when me and you are together, it's like a WWE, you know, wrestling match. It's like, you know, we love doing what we get to do every day. Have you always been that way? Have you ever always been outgoing? To an extent. You know, you brought up goaltending in, in that we were the weird ones. So in the locker room, I was friends with everybody, yeah. but I, I sort of kept to myself. I'd still joke and jive with everybody. Mm-hmm. And I, I, was, I'm, I wasn't like socially awkward or anything like that. But I think the being outgoing in, in uh, things of that nature, I think that's I grew into that a little bit. But I could always get along with anybody. And it, uh, I was terrified to get on stage to speak, which is hilarious. I took a speech class in college. And the funny thing was because I, I was a little bit Eeyore-ish, a little bit. <laughs> and so I gave a whole speech about laughter in an Eeyore kind of voice. So it made it funny, and people thought that was the <laughs> shtick. Um, but uh, I think I just grew into it. And maybe being in the uh, the spotlight with skateboarding mm-hmm. helped that, you know, being the front man for or having to be the front man for skateboard companies yeah. and representing sponsors. Well, let's talk now. about that. Like, so, so how, how did that all after hockey, you start skating and, and then it, did you just kind of fall into that too? You seem like the kind of guy that just like walks down the street and you fall into something cool and you, and, and if someone's like says something, you just instantly say yes. And you don't even know what you're getting yourself into sometimes. And, and you're like, yes, look what just happened. I don't know that for a fact, but maybe you could, you're pretty much on point, John. Uh, I am the guy, though, if I like something, I am all in yeah. 100%. I want to know everything about it. If there's a ramp, I i mean, when I got my driver's license, the first place we went to was Monroe because I heard there was a ramp there. And I loaded up my friends and we went to find this freaking ramp. <laughs> but it, it, it didn't come super easy. You know, like goaltending. I put in the hours. I Absolutely. mean, I was off ice training, I, I, but I'm all in. Yeah. And with skateboarding, it was just so much fun. And I was meeting the coolest people. And that community has always been um, very welcoming of, of everybody. doesn't yeah. matter the color of your skin, boy, girl. It doesn't matter. And I gravitated towards that. And in college, I started meeting more people who rode skateboards. And I started meeting better guys. And, and again, late in life, though, uh, at 24, 25, I started entering contests because it was a reason for my friends and I to get together. There was like one or two big contests a year. So we had an excuse all to get together for a weekend and ride our skateboards. We didn't care who we were the won. oldest one. Uh, no, we were all about the same okay, age. Gotcha. But it was a reason for us to get together. Yeah. And that's all it was. And I accidentally started winning. And then it sort of just started. I, I started getting a little bit better than everybody else. Mm-hmm. But there was other guys way better than me. I just didn't like falling down, so I was very consistent. Right. And um, <laughs> and there was a couple years there that I just never lost. And I was I would travel. And the Vans Warp Tour, we had uh, the Vans Warp Tour started in 97, 98. 
and originally it was a amateur skateboard showcase. It wasn't about music. Music was second. Okay. And if you won, they went to every state in the nation. If you won that contest in your state, they gave you a plane ticket to California, and they were touting it as the best amateur in the world because it was wow. it was fifty amateurs from every state. Showed up out there, Mr. Van Doren, who is awesome. He is the owner of Vans. I thank him every single time I see him because I won in 97, and I went out there, and I was like a deer in headlights. I think I got dead last because <laughs> I didn't know what I was. I'm coming out of the Midwest. Yeah, like, yeah. this is like Hollywood, and I don't even know what's going on. Right. Well, I happened to win the next year, and I was prepared then, and I did very well. Top 10 in the world as an amateur, and by the time I got home, there was – and I had – you know, I had shop sponsors and maybe shoes. Some guys sending me free shoes or this. I wasn't getting paid. Right. And um, uh, another great uh, time in my life was in 1992. I met Bill Danforth, who is, I mean, his name is as big as Tony Hawk. He is that legendary. He's from Detroit. We became friends. He started tattooing me. His skateboard career was sort of, uh, he, he was working a regular job. Okay. I met him, and he sort of took me under his wing and, and taught me the ropes a bit. And in 98, when I came home, I was going to turn pro. I said, Bill, I don't know. These guys want to turn me pro. You want to go check it out? Next thing you know, I got my name on a skateboard, and I'm pro. Wow, that's pretty cool. <laughs> so so did you ever get hurt? I mean, because listen, I mean, I sit there and watch you now, and you're at these skate parks, and there's like four-year-olds <laughs> whipping around you. like, And I'm like, this is crazy. You're 47. These guys are like four or five years old. Have you ever gotten hurt on the skateboard or doing tricks? Oh, I got to tell you, you know, as a goaltender, yeah, hockey is a contact sport. <laughs> and I played Especially ba- when pucks are flying at you at 100 miles per hour. I play baseball, football. I need a glass of water or something. <laughs> um, baseball, football, all the contact sports. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. First time, my first concussion was at 11. Um, with hockey, several concussions. Through skateboarding, I mean, 800 stitches, I've fractured my skull. Okay, okay, slow down. Say that again. I just want to make sure everybody just heard. 800 stitches was only part of this? Yeah, 800 stitches total. Um, fractured skull, multiple concussions. Um, I've separated my elbow. I'm probably forgetting a bunch of stuff, but that is the reason if you see a skateboard with my name on it, there's a picture of Frankenstein. Because is that why you have Frankenstein on it? That's exactly why. Because the scars, you know, they don't lie, and I wouldn't trade them for anything. Yeah. Um, I'm looking into right now those CTE, the study of like long term concussion stuff. Because we're in double digits here, and I know that there, there, there may be some things that I may want to do different in my life moving forward to continue to be able to do what we do. Absolutely. Let me ask you this: I now they have the extreme sports and stuff like that, and skateboarding is one of them. What's the biggest ramp you ever? What? What? I, I'm not a skateboarder, so do you dive into it? Do you roll drop into in, it? You actually, drop in. Okay, yeah. you drop in. What's the biggest ramp you ever dropped into? Uh, probably because I've never got a chance to do the mega ramp. Okay. I always wanted to. Would um, you still if you had a chance? I don't know. I really don't know. <laughs> I think I would try it. I do. Uh, the first time I saw the mega ramp in front of me, ironically, I was in uh, San Francisco. How many the, stories is that thing? Hmm? How many stories? Hi. I think, uh, I don't want a 30. It's as big it, as a building. Okay, gotcha. And I actually was probably 100 yards away from when Tony Hawk did his first 900. Okay. I was there. And um, that's the first time I saw a mega ramp. And I was blown away, but I'm like, I want to do that. I got to get up there. I got to get up there. And I've never actually had the opportunity. Right now, vert ramps, the big half pipe things are about 13 foot high. And that's the one I skate on a regular basis now. Have you ever been intimidated by a ramp or a pool or anything like that? Oh, yeah. Bunches of times. Really? Bunches of times. And, and So you do just... you prepare yourself a little bit different, like, before you go skating? Like, you know, like, I, I've interviewed racers and stuff like that. Everybody prepares themselves a little bit different. Even with me getting on stage, you know, you, you prepare yourself. Do you just put your stuff on and go? Or do you kind of, like... You, you know, do you stretch? Do you have certain socks you wear? Do you have certain underwear you use? Do you have rituals that you do? There's something different about me. When, yeah, there sure is something different about you and Carol. <laughs> when, when there's something on the line. 
Okay. Like when I go skate with my friends, you know, I might put on some punk rock. Sometimes it might be meditation music. Sometimes it might be an audio book. I yeah. don't have a definitive ritual. Gotcha. I do stretch for 20 minutes and I got my yoga and my things I do. But I, I was told this just three years ago. A Red Bull was hosting a contest here and I was with a guy that I skate with all the time. And I was supposed to judge. Okay. And they said, you know, this is how much it is for first place. And I said, really? <laughs> I'm like, that's like a house payment, man. And I said, can I enter? And I said, what's it to enter? They're free to enter. And my buddy said, as soon as you entered the contest, everything changed. He said, you did tricks. I've never even seen you try. And you just, everybody knew at that point they were skating for second place. Yeah. And it was just, I guess... The intensity got bumped up. Everything got bumped up. But to answer your question, I never really had a definitive because it was always fun. It was yeah. just something we loved to do. So it wasn't uh, like you weren't preparing. You guys are just goofing around, high fiving each other. Oh, it's your run now. Get in there. Yeah. You know, it was yeah. more like that. What was it like when you got your name or your picture on your first skateboard? Do you remember that time? Blew me away. Yeah. They said, What do you want on your skateboard? And hockey was my first love. Mm -hmm. And I said, I want a Frankenstein head and a Stanley Cup. And so my very first pro model looks like an old monster movie poster with, you know, Gerald Valley, like the old monster yeah. lettering, Frankenstein. And on the nose of the board is a full moon in the silhouette of a Stanley Cup. Because to me, it was my Stanley Cup. Yeah. To get my name on a board. That's I never, cool. I didn't expect to get another one. This was my one time yeah. I was going to embrace it and be excited about it. That is super cool. You know, I mean, we're just a little bit into this, but I, for the people that, that are listening, gee, we all fight things in life. And obviously yours started at a very, very young age, you know, with, with, with your legs, the way they were, you're, you know, you being deaf in one ear school, but you've overcome just about everything you've tried. I'm sure that there was a lot of failure because when you're good at something, you fail at things too. You fail at more things and you're successful at less things, but you only become successful when you fail because that's how you learn. What advice could you tell somebody listening right now? Whatever you're passionate about, and I don't care what it is. If you love shoelaces, be a freaking shoelace maker because <laughs> You're going to put in more work and more effort. And you're going to love what you do yeah. more than anything else that somebody tells you to do. And that's the way it was with me with goaltending, drumming, skateboarding, even artwork. I still draw all the time, but I draw what I love to draw. Nobody's telling me what to draw. Right. And I think it's really because I've developed a passion for these things. So it never felt like work to put in a, a 10 hour day or a 12 hour day. When did you realize that you could inspire people? And motivate people? People used to tell me that. And I never believed them. Yeah. I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, uh, like I said earlier, I really didn't like myself. And so even through my 20s, uh, I was still performing for everybody else. Yeah. And I would go home and be like, whatever, dude, you know, throw my board in the corner and be like, uh, who do you think you are? Yeah. And, you know, that's really the way I, 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 and you still fight with with a little bit of this, and I don't want to be negative here, but I'm going to throw something out there. And you even said it on your show the other day. I gave you three or four compliments during the show, and you didn't know how to act. I'll start crying. <laughs> it was like, I will start it crying. Was so funny. It was like, no, you are. I mean, you are an inspiration. You are motivating. You are. I mean, you walk down the street and you find something good in somebody, and that's what I liked about you. And like with me. When, when when I started the motivational side of things, I'm like, well, did people always say this? I'll never forget the time, and I've talked about it on the show, and this is what I meant by you, is I realized in junior high that I was inspiring people. And when I start reading it in my yearbooks, I was like, they're writing the same thing today, and that was 20 years ago. And I was like, wow. That's wow. a great question. I never really thought about it because most people were commenting about what I did. You know, you know, in my yearbook, it said going to be the first skateboarder in the Olympics. And mm -hmm. ironically, skateboarding is in the Olympics this right. year. And I actually have a guy coming on my show who is the ringleader of the Olympic skateboard team. OK, but um, I never really looked at it like I was inspiring others. And in 2007, it was the last year I was in the X Games. 2007, Louisville, I was there. When I got home, I'm like, I don't want to keep up anymore. I don't want to compete. What do I do now? Yeah. And that's when I, I met a guy named Kurt Luttermoser, and he was building an amateur, uh, amateur extreme sports organization here in the Midwest. And I said, I want to help because when I turned pro, 
They handed me 40 of my boards. They said, sell them. You have to go to California now. And I went to California. I knew nobody. I was sleeping on beaches and park benches. I knew nobody. So you're a professional skateboarder, broke, and living on the beach, homeless. Totally. Totally. The Following first, a dream, though. Completely. Completely following my dream. The first night, John, the first night I was there, <laughs> I was in the sketchiest hotel. The door didn't even lock. I used my board to wedge the door shut. So nobody could get in. But that was being a pro skateboarder. Look at that. I'm living the dream. Right, right. And I loved it. I loved it. Uh, looking back, I loved it. At the time, I'm like, I have to make this happen. They told me I have to. Right, yeah. But when I quit competing in 07 and started working with Kurt, he needed every, I got kids and animals gravitate towards me. Like, they love me. And I, again, I don't judge. I get along with everybody. And he's like, we need somebody to do some community outreach. I said, I've been already thinking about speaking just to tell you know, about living passionately. Yeah. So I started speaking to middle schools and it was radiating with these kids. I'm yeah. getting letters from principals saying, this kid never showed up to school. <laughs> and after you left, he said, I want to be like Gerald Valley and he never missed another day. Gerald, let me ask you this. What was it like for you to start speaking? Because you got long hair, flat brim hat, tattoos. You don't look like me. You know what I mean? It's like, you don't look like the typical motivational speaker. What was it like for you to walk in to a school? One of the raddest <laughs> things on the planet. And I will tell you why, because I would walk in. I didn't try to dress up. No, I'd I know. walk in, uh, you know, Dickies, probably a pair of Vans or DCs, tattoos, hat. And the teachers are looking at me and they're like, this <laughs> is like, the, oh my gosh. Yeah. And they're like, this is Who the person who's going to inspire our kids, huh? And I, you know, I get on stage <laughs> for a half hour, 45 minutes, and um, they show this video. And a lot of it is about, I forgot to tell you, I super glued my teeth in one time too. I'll tell you that story <laughs> later. But I get on stage and I do my thing. And by the time I got off stage, the teachers are saying, would you like to come over for dinner? You know, so I was breaking down some stereotypes right. yeah. at that time where maybe the teachers and the principal are saying, you know what? I can't judge a book by its cover because this kid who or this guy who I wouldn't give a second thought to on the street. Now I'm inviting him home to my my have dinner with my family. Yeah. You know, and so it was really a blessing. And I felt like I was almost uh, hitting two birds with one stone yeah, that's because awesome. the kids are fired up. The principal and the their their staff are saying Hmm, maybe we should look at our kids a little differently. And so it worked. It worked for me. You stayed true to yourself, didn't you? It's the only way to be comfortable on stage. We had the conversation on my show. Yeah. And when you really, you know, said, I'm going to get on stage exactly who I am, how I am, things started blossoming. And yeah. that's another great point is you have to be you. If somebody tried to put me in some kind of uniform, it wouldn't work. I wouldn't be able to speak passionately. I talk with my hands. I get animated, and I wouldn't feel comfortable doing that if I wasn't in my my own clothes yeah. and I wasn't comfortable in my own skin. So I want, I want now I have to hear the story about you super gluing your teeth in. I don't. Oh, what epic. do you mean you lost teeth? Epic, epic. So um, the teeth I'm looking at now are not your they teeth. They are not real. <laughs> uh, so so Danforth and I are skating this bowl. And uh, I carve around this corner. It's a little rough. I go headfirst into the other side, and I put my hands in front. The only thing that hits the bowl are my two front teeth. Oh. And I break one out, in the, uh, or I crack one in half, crack part of another one. And about five minutes later, Bill comes up, and he's like, I found your teeth, dude. <laughs> and he hands them to me. And I just, out of nowhere, again, we were living like, we were pretty punk rock dudes. Yeah. And I said, well... My favorite taco place is next door, so let's run down to CVS and get some super glue, and I'm going to glue them in so I can eat. And I glued them in. It lasted for about two months. I glued them in a few times, and then I went to my dentist, and he finally fixed them right. But, uh, yeah, I did super glue my teeth in. Wow. Did you, did you ever stitch yourself up? Oh, yeah. I got pictures of that. We could show them. Um, <laughs> that's another great story. So we're qualifying for a contest, and I jumped from ramp to ramp, and a gentleman happened to drop in right across the way from me, and I hit him full speed. Yeah. And he's, like, screaming like he's dying, and I'm trying to help him because I'm not really that hurt. Five minutes later, the knee of my pants is soaking wet, and my dad happened to be there, and I pull it up, and there's this big old gash in my knee, so I tell my dad, I'm like, go to the corner, get me some uh, duct tape, and I wrap it with uh, paper towels, duct tape. I win the contest. 
Then I go to the hospital. This lady sews it up. I don't think she could tie her shoes. <laughs> so I get home, and uh, one of the stitches is already coming out. So I'm sitting with my cousin. I take a razor blade, pop the stitches out. My aunt actually was breeding Yorkies at the time. She had given me stitches kits, pull out the stitches <laughs> kit, sew my own knee up, and uh, and I think I did a better job than she did, but yeah. Wow, that's crazy. So you have an organization. I think it's really cool. Most people that are um, in the spotlight all have organizations. Yours is called Purple Heart. And yeah. when you first was telling me about that, I mean, I thought of Purple Heart like the purple heart that shows up, you give the furniture to and stuff like that. But yours is a little bit different. How and why did you come up with the name Purple Heart for your organization? Well, my grandpa is my idol. Okay. Elmer Valley is my idol. Dude's amazing. And again, I get choked up sometimes talking about him. He's no longer with us. But, uh, I mean, 300-game bowling, hole-in-one golfing. He was a World War II vet. He drove a tank for General Patton, Purple Heart, Bronze Star, and about 15, 15 years ago, I was getting tattooed and I wanted to get my own version of a purple heart. I said, you know, I get it now. Yeah. yeah and I'm like, you know nice. what? I think everybody deserves a version of a purple heart for living life because it ain't easy. Life is, well, life isn't easy. So I get this heart and crossbones tattooed on my wrist. And that's all it was at that time. Okay. When I left one of the skateboard companies, I was going to start my own. And I was uh, kicking names around. And I had already started printing Purple Heart shirts in my basement by myself. And so I started a skateboard company called Purple Heart. I took out the vowels. So it's just P-R-P-L-H-R-T. Phonetically, you have to say it that way. And it doesn't infringe on the Purple Heart that you give the clothes to or the Purple Heart medal. I'm not trying to discount that at all. No, I love your spin on it, though. But um, it, it, it evolved into a clothing company where I can just... Put out shirts and hats when I want with my artwork. If you order a hat from purpleheart.com, I actually hand paint the logo myself. Yeah, that's what's cool. On that hat. So tell everybody again how to get there because it's not spelt the same way, just yep. like you said. So tell everybody how to PRPLHRT.com. And, you know, it's just T-shirts, sweatshirts. We offer new product every once in a while. The hats are hand custom done. I usually throw in a piece of my original artwork with every box. I try to personalize it because we do. No matter what you're going through in your life, you have overcome so much. And you deserve a Purple Heart medal. And that's what it's about. Or you know somebody that does. Definitely. And that leads into my next question. And, um... Gee, when I when I first met you, um, we did some talking, and I met you right when you started your journey of being sober. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, now I don't want to overspeak here, but I think you are coming up on your third year being sober. Is that correct? Yep, February second. Ironically, it's Groundhog's Day, and I got tired of living that same life over and over and over. I again. hope you don't mind me bringing that up, but I want to know a little bit more about that because, again, that's I, I almost wish I had a Purple Heart for you because, again, you've overcome so many obstacles in your life, and I believe that that um, we all get lost every once in a while. Yeah, you got lost again, but this time it was your fault, not being born not having the ear problems, not sports. You had that problem. It was my choice. And what like- happened? Can you can you just talk a little bit about that because I and I hope you don't mind me bringing that up, but I think it's so important for people to realize that they're not the only ones struggling. Yeah. Um you know, I I everybody goes through tough times in life and uh at a certain point in my life and I didn't drink for a very a super long time, which I'm very fortunate. I mentioned earlier I was straight edge most of my life. So I didn't even drink a beer till I was 25 years old. Really? And when I was traveling with my buddy Danforth, he's gnarly punk rock dude. And I drank for a little, you know, a little a couple years with him. I, I I saw where it was going then. Yeah. And I didn't drink again for like 13 years. And uh, I got into a tough time in my life and I thought vodka was the right way to go. And at that time, I just bought a house. I was living by myself. My cat wasn't going to tell me to quit. And I had some money in the bank. And all I did was shut off from society. I would go home, lock my door, shut off my cell phone, and get a couple fifths of vodka and just drink and drink 
and drink. I really felt like I had done everything I needed to do on the earth up to that point. So it didn't matter if I lived or died. I was drinking myself to death. Did you ever think about that? Taking your own life? Oh, yeah. Every time I drank. And as it progressed, I that's what I was shooting for. That's really what I was shooting for. Oh, wow. And, um, and so this was quick, like a five, six-year period. And again, I'm all or nothing. So I was all in. I could not find a vodka bottle big enough that I didn't want to jump into. So it wasn't just once in a while. I mean, did you wake up drinking and go to bed drinking? Or was it just like, okay, I worked all day, and then I'm going to go home and have a few drinks and just didn't stop? I mean, how was it? Or what was it? For a while, I could hold down a regular job. Mm -hmm. I would drink till I blacked out every night, and I would wake up at 5 a.m., and I would go to work. And on the way home from work, I would get a pint or two or three or four. Uh, uh, Veteran alcoholics, like, buy two pints because... It's cheaper and you get more than a fifth. So I started buying two pints. I did start with rum and then a veteran alcoholics like drink vodka. Nobody can smell it. When you drank as much as I did, it didn't matter. You could smell it from a block away. And it just continued to progress to where um, at one point, and this is like a lot of people don't know this, and I don't talk about this a ton. One point I have a little handgun and I had my handgun. I was blacked out. And they put me in an insane asylum for five days because I was going to go. We have one of the best recovery centers in the world here in Michigan, in Brighton uh, Center for Recovery. People fly from all over the world to go to Brighton. I couldn't get into Brighton until Tuesday. So uh, I went to the hospital, and they locked me up until Sunday night. I mean, it was clockwork orange, dude. Like, I woke up, and a doctor said, you can wake up in the morning and get your meds. I said, I don't take any meds. He said, you do now. And I'm with people throwing chairs at windows. I'm with people screaming. I'm with people talking. I said, I'm an alcoholic. I'm not crazy. Right. And the guy heard me, and he put me in the back corner out of the way. I said, can I just go home and see my cat before I go to rehab? And they let me come home for one day, and I almost didn't go to rehab that day. I got up. My girlfriend at the time, um, who is now my wife, is like, you're going. And I said, I'm not going. I'm not going at all. All I want to do is go get another vodka bottle. I went to Brighton. That I ended up visiting Brighton three times. I kept going back. What was the turning point for you? Um, or would you? Was it just like that? And you were made to go. The or tur- was it a turning point for you? Because you you ultimately have to make that decision, correct? It is a personal. I, I don't decision. know how to. I, I'm not an alcoholic, so I don't know. You have to make that decision. The doctors and everybody else can. The, the counselors can help you. They can give you the outline, but you have to follow the roadmap. Well, I'll tell you, Johnny, I, um, first time I went to rehab, I did what I always do. I, you know, it, it, rehab is a lot like school. It's structured every day. You're taking mm-hmm. courses, all this kind of stuff. And I did more work than everybody else, better than everybody else. <laughs> um, the model citizen. And I'll bet within a week of getting out of there, I went right back to it. The second time I went to Brighton, the week before I ran a triathlon across the street, I ran a triathlon. A week later, I'm getting, going back to Brighton. The third time, I'm like, you know, they they sort of treated me like Eminem, like the second time, because kids knew who I was mm-hmm. there. And I said, I'm here the same reason you are, man. Yeah. I'm not here to sign autographs or, or do anything crazy. The third time, it still didn't work. I got out and I drank more. Why didn't it work? I don't know. I don't know because I went through the process, but I just wasn't getting it. I mean, I woke up. I went to the hospital one time, and they said your blood alcohol content level is forty percent. Wait, you just you said forty percent, forty percent. So you know the legal limit's point oh eight. Right. My my blood alcohol was point four oh, and they said if you weren't in such good shape, you'd be dead or in a coma right now. And then I was up on the cardiac unit because they were monitoring everything in my system. And again, this happened in a very short period of time. Yeah. Just one day. I don't even, I can't tell you, they say a moment of clarity is the catchphrase they use, and it wasn't straight out of rehab, it wasn't anything like that, and I walked into my bathroom, and I looked in the mirror, and I'm like, this ain't you, dude. You're a social animal, and you're shutting off your phone, you're locking your door, you are going to die. You, uh, there's no, you are going to die, and if that's what you want, continue, but this is not you. Yeah. And I never drank again. I never drank again. I, Dude, not- high five at three years uh, this Sunday, right? Yes, Sunday. 
Um, and I don't go to meetings. I have a very interesting way. I, I deal with a lot of other people on a regular basis who are sober. I don't make it my platform. It's not like I'm not on a uh, out on preaching on the corners. If you right. watch me on social media or, or listen to my show, it's not always at the forefront. It comes up. Yeah. But people will private message me. I've done one-hour shows on nomoreheroin.org with a buddy of mine mm-hmm. named Higgy talk about how I stay sober. Um it's it's something that's a personal journey for me, but when I can help somebody else, oh man, I am there in a minute. Well, and that's what I, I appreciate about you is, you know, this is the Outstanding Life podcast. And if you look at the word outstanding and you look at it backwards, it means to stand out, to rise above the rest and be a little bit different. I appreciate you for standing out and being a little bit different and sharing sharing this message to somebody that might be listening right now that you just saved their life and them and them saying, you know what, this isn't for me anymore. Well, it's your be, choice. Because it's not just alcohol. It could be anything in life. Okay. We all have struggles with with, with different things. Um, and that leads me into my next question. And that is, you have your own show, man. You're 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 uh, coming up on 50 episodes, man. It's really cool. I had a lot of fun being being on your show, but I want to talk about how that even came up. Because you've always wanted the show. You I, you actually had a show that you you've been talking about for years. And then all of a sudden one day I'm like, how in the heck does this guy have his own show? And, and it's so cool. And the people you're working with are cool. I mean, I mean, you got the real deal going on. How'd that all happen? Well, I'm going to give you the cliff notes. And, and we didn't, I don't even know if we've ever talked about this, but in 2010, I couldn't walk. And that's right. You broke your uh, leg. Uh, no, or something, this right? is even before oh, that. Okay. Gotcha. 2010. I can't walk. My hips aren't working properly. Uh, I think I'm getting new hips. I go to the Red Wing doctor. <laughs> I've been diagnosed with like this, that, and the other thing. And the doctor's like, you have all five of those things, Mr. Valley. You have deformed femurs. You have femoral acetabular impingement, extra bone growth. You got cysts. You got bursitis. He's like, I'm going to take pain. You're like, med- hey doc, thanks for the uh, motivation, right? <laughs> well, he basically his diagnosis was take pain medication. And when you can't function, I'll give you new hips. You're too young. And I think I was 35. When I got home, I'm like, I'm addicted to adrenaline. I have to do something. Mm -hmm. And I started Underground Valley, a podcast from my couch, free platform from my phone, just interviewing my friends. And I did that for a few years and I had a great time Mm -hmm. and it did pretty good. And, uh, but I put it on the back shelf, you know, I started drinking, life gets in the way, whatever. And I did break my leg a couple years ago. Didn't even know it was broken. I got I up, that. I skated more, helped everybody. My my leg was broken in half. And when I recovered from that, I had volunteered at TEDx, TEDx Detroit, because I wanted to speak there. So I yeah. figured I'll volunteer, see what it's all about, maybe rub some elbows with the right people. Yeah. I want to get in there. They have a trade show there where people that fit their model can show their products or their services for free. Mm-hmm. NRM, New Radio Media, happen to have a booth. And I handed one card. I stopped by there and I talked to Ian and Andy. And I said, you know, I wouldn't mind doing the podcast again. That was pretty fun. And I gave him one card. And a lady, Mary Ann. All weekend. That's the only card you gave out. That's it. One (laughs) card. And uh, lady, Mary Ann, started calling me. And I'm blowing her off. I'm like, they just want money. That's all they want. Yeah. And I accidentally, I was walking across my living room. And the phone rang and I answered it. And it was her. And we have an hour-long conversation. This is October. Yeah, October uh, of last year. Hour-long conversation, two years ago, actually. Hour-long conversation. Next thing I know, I'm meeting with the CEO, and he's just like, I love you. You're like the real deal. Right. He's like, you don't BS. You you are exactly who you are. You know, I probably walked in in blue dickies, baseball hat. What's yeah. up, dude? And um, and then it just escalated from there. We hammered some things out. April 18th of last year, I did my first show, and it's just, uh, you know, under promise and over deliver. I, yeah. I try to bring the energy and the positive stories, different guests. The guests are the stars, as you know. No, absolutely. So so tell everybody how to get to that platform to watch your shows. Because, I mean, it, it's it's really cool because they hit one button and they can get all, all of your shows. Yes. Um, the easiest way is to go to lifemaverick.com. And that tells you more about my story. There's a one-click button there. You can go straight to the show. Or if you go to new uh, nrmstreamcast.com, in the arts and entertainment, there's a show called The Drop-In. And you can see them all. And we cover everything. I mean, I had Mike Leslie from Candlebox, J.R. Adams, the Hollywood stuntman for Opie from Sons of Anarchy. <laughs> he was on the show. And we just have a good time. And we tell the story of how they got to where they got to, what they had to overcome 
to get to where they are today. And many of them are so crazy because they're just following their passion. So wait a second. So you started a show just to keep yourself motivated every week. Pretty much. <laughs> pretty much. Because it's just like this show. It's like, you know, people are like, you get so many cool people and just everyday people too. Because we all have stories and we can all motivate each other. You don't have to be rich. You don't have to be famous to motivate and inspire others. And that's the best part of doing what we do. Yeah. And on my show, it's the same kind of thing. It's not all Hollywood people. I have local entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. I had a lady who trained a dog to uh, be able to smell red dye number 40 because her daughter was allergic to it. And, and when she was getting ready to go out into the world, when she was turning three or four years old, her mom is like, I don't know how I can do this because she's red dyes and everything. Wow. Yeah. She was a teacher. And now she trains dogs. Those are the kinds of stories that I think uh, people can resonate with. Absolutely. And you are exactly right. Everybody has a story. Yeah. Yeah. That's the coolest part. So you're also an author. Ah, Talk yeah. a little bit about your book, man. It's like, you know, it, it was funny when we were talking be before the show, you're like, oh, I forgot I was a drummer. I forgot this. So talk a little bit about your book because your book is super sweet. Well, in 2012, um, I wanted to write a book. I'm like, what do I do next? And again, I'm a punk rock dude. Do it yourself. <laughs> I taught myself to screen print, play drum, whatever. Yeah. And uh, I was working in the print industry. So I'm like, how do I write a book? So I hooked up with uh, some punk rockers from the West Coast and... I worked with a teacher. I wrote a motivational book called Voluntary Self-Achievement because I think personal accountability is very important and we're losing that with some of the younger generation. Mm -hmm. So it was this book and it was stories like I'm telling on here, but each chapter had worksheets for kids to start doing. If it's making up their bed, if it's doing their homework, if it's making shoelaces, whatever they want. It's a and, great book. I read it myself. So well, it is a great It's an easy book. read and yeah. it's pretty exciting because the stories are cool. You yeah. can get it on Amazon if you look up Gerald Valley and Voluntary self-achievement and I'm working on my next book and uh, it's just it's fun it's another way to reach more people yeah. and that's my goal I want to inspire everybody across the globe that it's their choice to live the life they want whatever that is if you want to climb Mount Everest you can do it that's I right. guarantee you can do it and <laughs> if you want to walk the Pacific Coast Trail it doesn't freaking matter what's your favorite time of the day that's a tough question really I thought for sure you were just gonna say Mornings. And and see, the morning is very important to me. <laughs> I am a ritual person, so I wake up in the morning, 4.30, I do yoga, then I lay down and meditate for 45 minutes to lay out my plan. I always make, I have five things I do, and I learned them from a guy named Tim Ferriss. I always make up my bed, I, I make my morning coffee, and oftentimes I will either journal or talk into an audio, um, just just whatever's on my mind at that point. So you, you know? journal? Yep. Okay. Yep, and, and and I do the same thing every single morning. And when I don't do that, the meditation part's the, the most important for me because I lay out my day. Yeah. I lay out my day mentally. It doesn't always work that way, but at least I'm going into it with a very positive mindset. When that alarm goes off and it's like my meditation, because sometimes I fall asleep. Yeah. Most of the time I'm half asleep, half awake. I got my little binaural beats going. I have my, <laughs> I have my thing, you know, everybody, you know, whatever. We you, all have our thing, man. Yeah, and, and, uh, and it works for me. So the morning is probably the most important because that lays out the rest of the day. So already I can't believe that we are down to like 10 minutes left. I mean, it, it, it's kind of crazy. So I'm going to have some fun with you. I, I want to really, really get to know you because... I, and what I mean by that is there has been some great stories and some great lessons today in this podcast, but I have to know you're 47 years old. What has been your favorite toy? My favorite toy when I was a little I know, kid, not, not a serious, no, I don't listen. I don't care if you were five or if you were 45, what has been one of your favorite toys? <laughs> I'd, See, that's a tough one. I, I can say my Gene Simmons action figure because one year my you mom- You were in the Kiss? Oh, yeah. I was uh, Paul Stanley in kindergarten with my Kiss Army shirt. Oh, yeah. Uh, and the reason that was pretty cool is because my mom didn't want us to go out trick-or-treating. And she said, I'll well, buy- Well, I was safe back then. She just didn't want me rotting my teeth out or something. And she said, I'll buy you one thing. I said, I want Gene Simmons action figure. And I remember my buddy's dad going, you play with Barbie dolls, dude? And I love that thing. I love the Gene Simmons action figure. The other thing that I love is I have the um, bean bags to juggle. Oh, and when yeah. I was about 12, there was a guy that juggled at school. And I had a beat up unicycle. 
And I said, I will give you this unicycle if you teach me how to juggle. And he came home with me every day after school and taught me how to juggle. And I still juggle to this day. Really? I have bean bags sitting next to my couch right now. I know that about you. That's and, cool. Uh, and in between periods when I was playing hockey, I juggle hockey pucks. Uh, good hand-eye coordination, just something now, fun. Now, can you do that and skate at the same time? I probably could on <laughs> flat ground. Now, those of you that can't see him, his eyes just got lit up, and I'm probably going to get a video tomorrow going, dude, look at this, I'm doing it. New challenge, <laughs> but, you know, those are two things that stand out for What's me. still on your bucket list? You've traveled all over the world. You've done so many cool things. You've inspired people. You've had, you know, celebrities on your show. You've done so many cool things. But what is still on G's bucket list my personal bucket list right now because it'll change i guarantee it'll change um the uh, priority for me is to go to india um i've been a student of buddhism for about a decade now and i'd like to go there and really experience it experience uh some of the temples there okay. uh bathe in the ganges stuff like that that's very high on my bucket list i used to think i wanted to climb mount everest and that Until is you saw the movie. I, I saw the movie and I didn't realize what it entailed. It's incredible. Dude, I, I remember when it was on TV, like they would do that, that, that show. And, and I kind of wanted to do that too. I don't know if I could make it halfway up. Like, you know, I mean, it's a big deal. And in, in G it costs a lot of money to climb Mount Everest. Everybody thinks that you, you just go away for a couple days. No, it's a process. And there's only certain points in time and the weather right. could change and you could spend $60,000 and you get to where you can see the peak and they say you can't go any further. Right. The weather just got bad. You got to go back yeah. down. There's guys that have done it four or five times and never made it to the peak. That used to be on my bucket list. I don't know about that, but, you know, maybe uh, I wouldn't mind walking the Pacific Coast Trail, you know, oh, from Mexico to nice. Canada. Okay. Just different things like that to challenge myself. That's pretty cool. What's your favorite type of ice cream? Butter and pecan. Really? 100%. I, see, I, I guess I don't know you as well as I thought. I thought for sure you were going to say mint chocolate chip. Butter pecan. Really? Why is that? Is there a reason? I think I just enjoyed it as a little kid, and I don't eat ice cream a lot. I know. But if I, if I have my, my choice, it's butter pecan. You're no fun. <laughs> Let me ask you this. And um, if you could be a cartoon character for a week, what cartoon character? character would you be underdog underdog 100% underdog when I was a little kid I had underdog sheets and they stayed <laughs> and I kept having my grandma my grandma was amazing Opal Alvare she was the most incredible seamstress and she would continuously have to sew the corners of those sheets I probably slept on them I mean, like a decade, and I had an underdog bank. I never missed it. I thought it was cool. He was the sort of nerdy guy, but then people really didn't know he was underdog. It'd have to be underdog or Felix the Cat because he had that bag of tricks, man. He could pull <laughs> <laughs> he could pull anything. No matter where he was, he could pull anything out of that bag and make it happen. Gerald, we're going to be literally wrapping things up in two or three minutes here. Is there something that I forgot to bring up that you want to make sure that the listeners know about you or maybe a life lesson that you learned that you want to pass on to the listeners this next couple minutes before I wrap things up is you brother just don't pigeonhole yourself give everything a chance you know as I grew up I I played hockey I tried baseball I, I played football I tried everything I possibly could and I didn't excel at everything but I continue to try all sorts of different things. And even to this day, I ran a triathlon, you know, five years ago. And I, I really didn't think I could, but I just wanted to challenge myself. Don't pigeonhole yourself, man. Because you're not, you don't really know what you love or what you may fall in love with until you try it. And that's probably the biggest lesson. I talk a lot about living the life of Stoke. And what the life of Stoke is, it is just living exciting, no matter what it is. If you want to go to Sedona and visit this spiritual place, go to Sedona. If you want to go to Fargo because you saw the movie, go to Fargo. This is not a dress rehearsal. We get one shot at life, and if you don't make the most of it, it's your own fault. I have been in the gutter, and I've been on top of the world, and where, where I'm at today I'm, I'll, I will take accountability for that because I worked hard to get here. But if tomorrow I'm back in the gutter, I'm, uh, 
in a good spot in my life where I'll take accountability for that. So wherever you're at in your life, one, take accountability for it, your life, your choice. Two, make the most of it because we don't get a second shot. And I want me to make sure that you tell everybody how they can find you again. If they want to yeah. follow you, your show, your website, uh, Purple Heart, everything. Run through all that one more time. On Facebook, it's Gerald Valley, and you can message me. I answer. Spell that for everybody, please. G-A-R-O-L-D as in dog, Valley, V as in Victor, A-L-L-I-E. On Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LifeMaverick.com has more about my story and all things that are me. Uh, PurpleHeart.com, you can buy some product, P-R-P-L-H-R-T. And I personally pack every single box. You'll probably get a lot more than what you pay for because I usually throw in a bunch of extra stuff. And uh, drop me a line, you know, watch the show. If you got suggestions, let me know. I, I'm always open and always learning. One last question, and I promise I'm going to wrap this thing up, and that is... Gee, if you left here today and you stopped to get some gas, you bought a lottery ticket, tomorrow you'll wake up, you meditate, you do all the things that you do, you're on your way to work, you found out that that ticket is a multi-million dollar lotto ticket. You just won the mega millions, bro. Would your life change? What would you do? I'm really, really curious right now what Gerald Valley would do. What would G do if he had that winning ticket in his hands? I'd give 80% of it away. Actually, I'd find somebody to help me give it away. I'd be a straight-up philanthropist. And my life wouldn't change much. My life, I love the house I live in. I love downriver. We live in southeastern Michigan in one of the coolest blue-collar areas where everybody looks out for everybody. I've been all over this country, and I've yet to find the quality of people that we live around. That's why I haven't moved. It's awesome. (laughs) I could live anywhere in the country. Nothing would really change in my life except I'd be able to help and inspire more people around the globe. Yeah, that's so cool, man. Well, hey, we got to wrap things up. G, thank you so much for being on the show. This is Johnny D, the Motivational Cowboy, with this week's Outstanding Life podcast. And I can't thank Gerald Valley for hanging out with me for the last hour. And I want to encourage all of you to choose a platform to listen to the Outstanding Life podcast. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud, and Player FM. And please tell your friends and family all about the show. And if you like what we're doing here on the Outstanding Life podcast, podcast now you can make a donation at paypal and also support on patreon until next time this is johnny d the motivational cowboy telling you be safe have fun and have yourselves an outstanding day we'll see you next time outstanding life is a soul bridge studio production